Father, we thank you for your word, which has come to your church throughout the ages. And so we receive it, and we believe it, and we ask that we would be changed by it this morning, as you have done for thousands of years. We invite you now by your spirit to be present, to be making your son Jesus very real to us, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. Yeah. Good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team. It's good to be with you this morning. I add my welcome uh, to Daniel's welcome. Uh, September is a strange time. Let's just admit it out of the gate. It can be very, very awkward uh, for many of us as we transition into this season of being new faces. Now, some new faces are new faces, but there's also something called old new faces. Let me explain uh, the two. New new faces this morning are those of you who've come and you've been away from the church for a while. In fact, it's been years since you've darkened the door of a church. And we want to say welcome to you this September. Uh, maybe you've never, ever, ever been in a church before. This is your first time ever. Someone's standing up here. We're singing something, but you don't, you don't understand what it's about. And someone's reading something. And why are they reading that? And you're confused. And hands are being raised. And you don't know why. We want to say welcome. You're a new, new face with us this morning. And yet some of us, isn't it true, are old new faces. We've spent the past year and a half first on Zoom, which I hope gets destroyed in some sort of apocalyptic inferno. If you've invested in Zoom, I apologize. And then we were, of course, right, doing the live stream. And many of, us, many of you joined us on live stream. And then this Sunday is the first Sunday where there's no live stream, there's no Zoom, it's just us. And so we're new New faces, or old new faces. I got it right that time. It's good to be back. So whether you're an old new face or a new new face, it's worth reminding one another and ourselves who we are this morning. Who we are. I want to ask three things of Romans 12, our text. If you're wondering, hey, Jake, why are we in Romans? I thought we were in a 1 Corinthians series. That's next week. Be very, very excited about that. But for today, we're in Romans 12. And I want to ask three things of this text, very simply. First, as a church, who are we? Who are we? Second, what do we do? And then third and finally, why does it matter? Who are we? What do we do? Why does it matter? If you have your Bibles, go to Romans 12 with me. If you are new to the Bible, I'm so excited you're here. We actually have Bibles at the back now for you to keep and take. It is our gift to you. Go to the table of contents if you can't find Romans. Find it there towards the back half of your Bible. We're going to be in chapter 12. So Romans chapter 12, we jump into this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And we begin by reading this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Before we begin this morning, like I just said, we have to remember we're jumping into something, the middle of this letter. And Paul says in chapter 12, it's very, very important that we look back. Therefore, he says, right, by the mercies of God. He's written about something. He's talked about something for the past 11 chapters that's going to make all the difference as we look at chapter 12 this morning. Well, what is Paul talking about? 
In probably more detail than any other New Testament letter, the Apostle Paul spends 11 chapters unpacking what we call as Christians the gospel or the good news. For Paul, just as it is for us today, there were many gospels in his day. There was the gospel of the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord. Caesar, who brought in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That was a good news in Paul's day. There were many competing good news all around Paul. And Paul says, we as Christians have a good news. And he begins to unpack it systematically, chapter by chapter by chapter. And Romans, if you've read it, is dense and full and glorious and beautiful. See, in the first few chapters in this gospel, Paul spends a lot of time explaining to the church in Rome that all of us fall under this category of unrighteous. He says, religious people, you religious people, you observe the Torah, you've done all these things, you've abstained from these foods, and yet you still fall under the category of unrighteous. Outside you're clean, but inside, oh, it's a mess. Before that, he says to irreligious people or people who don't like church, don't like the Bible, don't like this stuff, he says, listen, you too are enslaved. You too are enslaved to your passions, your stuff. All this wild living, you're also enslaved. We all fall under this category of unrighteous, Paul says. And in Romans 3, we, we read this famous verse that all have fallen short of the glory of God. God has a design for humanity and religious and irreligious alike miss it. Don't hit it. But into this bad news, again, as Paul builds his argument, he says God has sent his son, Jesus, to be our good news. Though we, religious and irreligious alike, are far from God, God has sent his son Jesus to bring us near to God, near to him. Paul says in Romans 5, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, I love it, because it's nothing like we know. He says, for while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, all of us, religious, irreligious alike. He says, honestly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This gospel is that because God the Father loves you so much, he sent God the Son who also loves you to die for you. To pay the price to rescue us from our prisons of religion and irreligion. To give us new spirit-filled life today. To bring us one day into his kingdom in full. And at this point in the story, if you've been around the church before, we usually stop right? You've probably heard, at least I hope you've heard before, Jesus died for you. Like if you go to a WWE event and it's like Austin 316, you know what I'm talking about? It's a reference to John 316. Like for God to love the world, he sent his only son to, what, right? To die for us, to save us. See, the phrase Jesus died for you is a, is a popular idea in our culture on billboards, on signs, heard in songs, but the problem with Jesus died for you is not that it's not true, is that it's not big enough. 
The gospel according to Paul in Romans is actually bigger than Jesus died for you. It's not less than Jesus died for you, but it is more than Jesus died for you. Environmentalists, you'll be happy to know uh, that Paul makes a big deal in Romans about all of creation being subjugated, subjugated under the weight of sin. That the fall has impacted every rock, every tree, every fountain, every fish, every animal. And that when Jesus comes to liberate creation, he will liberate all of creation. The mountains we enjoy on the weekends will be made new. The rivers we kayak and canoe down again will be made new. There will be no drought or earthquakes or famine. But right now the earth groans under the weight of sin. There is redemption. There is good news for creation. But what's perhaps even clearer in Romans is, yes, the gospel is good news for individuals. Yes, the gospel is good news for creation. But perhaps chiefly, the gospel is good news for a community. The Bible calls this community the church. The church. See, the first thing you need to know about us as we introduce ourselves to these new, new faces and old, new faces is, yes, we are different. Around this room, you can look if you want, there are different ethnicities represented here. We're different. On September 20th, I can guarantee you people around this room will vote for different political parties, different political leaders. We have different musical preferences. Some of your musical preferences are, are bad. You just like bad music, and I like good music, right? This is how it is. We have differing opinions on COVID and our response to COVID. We have different incomes. We think different things. We do different jobs. We have different gifts. But all these differences are the beautiful and varied fruit that comes from us being joined to the one vine who is Christ, who is Jesus, who is our Lord. That's what Paul's getting at. See, he doesn't say in Romans 12, verse 1, now that we've talked about all this theology so far for 11 chapters, let's now talk ethics. And it's unrelated, right? That's the theology. Here are the ethics, the rest of this letter. They're unrelated, two separate things, theology and ethics. No, Paul doesn't separate those two. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Romans 12.1, I think, is better translated, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, through the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God. And here's what this means. The gospel, God's mercy to sinners in Christ, is both the thing that welcomes us into the church and the thing that empowers us to live as the church. And this is so important, I'm going to say it twice. The gospel is both the thing that welcomes us into the church. But it's not like we get rid of the gospel once we become Christians. No. The gospel is the thing that empowers us now to live as the church, both among each other and outside these walls. We don't get rid of the gospel and so to answer the question, who are we? Really simply, we are a gospel-shaped community. We're a gospel-shaped community. And what does a gospel-shaped community look like? For one, 
and we'll talk negatively first, it looks different than the world. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Do not be, did you notice this? Conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So picture this with me. If the world is marked by endless competition, unceasing meritocracy, that is not to be us. And if everything from, from geopolitics down to how we love our next door neighbor who is super annoying goes on an eye for an eye system, you do this, I'll do that. That is not to be us. If the world says, get what you want, when you want, how you want, for whatever reasons you want, whatever it costs, that is not to be us. Paul says, be transformed, church. Be transformed, church. Why? Is it because the people in front of you and behind you are 21st century super saints? Let me assure you, I know most of them, they are not. And they know me, and I am not. Are they these monks living amongst us? No, no. It's because we've received, and now we live in a good news that is radically opposed to the tireless, endlessly judgmental, furious meritocracy of our world. Jesus Christ saved us. Do you remember? I just read it. We loved it. While we were still sinners. So by God's grace, we ought to be different from the world. But again, that's the negative. That's who we're not. That's who we're not. What's the positive? What does it practically look like to be a gospel-shaped community? What's the reminder for us? New, new faces and old, new faces. I think it's this. Uh, one retired pastor that I deeply appreciate and respect, and I've never met him before, is a guy named Ray Ortland. And Ray Ortland says that in every gospel-shaped community, three things, at least three things exist. These three things, ready? Gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. Well, what does that actually mean? Ortland writes this. The family of God is where people should find lots of gospel, lots of safety, and lots of time. In other words, the people in our churches need, ready? Multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. He says the safety of non-accusing sympathy so they can admit their problems honestly. And third, enough time to rethink their lives at a deep level. Why? Because people are complex and changing is not easy. And so you've come this morning and you don't know who we are or you've forgotten. If you're tired, while everyone is talking about ramping up for the fall, we announced a whole bunch of ministries. We're gonna have cake after this. I'll tell you about that in a bit, don't worry. All of you are now distracted. You're forgetting what I'll say, you know, coming up. All you can think about really is getting through the day. 
or the weak. You're tired. Or you've come and you're angry. Angry at other people. Maybe angry at someone in the church. Maybe angry at yourself. Angry at that sin that keeps on coming up again and again and again and again and again and again. Or you've come and you're, you're anxious, you're fearful, or you're both of these things at the exact same time to the nth degree. To the tired, a gospel-shaped community says, come. Come in from the rat race. Get off the treadmill. Stop trying to climb the pyramid. Christ has won it all. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's won it all. He's done everything. To those angry at injustice, a gospel-shaped community says, come here and cry. You know, we have a saying in our home that I am now thinking about it, repenting of to you right now as I go into this sermon. But we're finished. And so we say, are you being a sucky Swede or a tough Finn? And let me just say this, that's sin for me to say that to my kids. You can come here and be a sucky Swede. And if you're Swedish, I'm very sorry right now. But you can come here and be weak. What does Paul say in Romans 5? While we were still weak, while we were still sinners, come here, be weak, and cry out, I don't get it. And it doesn't make sense. And I'm tired, and I'm crying, and I'm lonely, and I hate it. And why, God, why? And together, really gently, we're going to point you to the end of the age when Christ comes to restore all things, to wipe away every tear. To those angry at themselves, at their failures, a gospel-shaped community says again and again and again and, and again, in Christ you are forgiven. And I hope you heard that this morning in the call to worship, in the confession, in the assurance. In Christ you are forgiven. In fact, this is a community of messed up people. The person in front of you, let me tell you, is more messed up than you know. And the person behind you, even more messed up than the person in front of you. A bunch of messed up people. This is the place to be if you want to change in Christ. To the anxious, the fearful, a gospel-shaped community says, we see you and the gospel frees us from fear. And we know that's easy to say, but we want to walk with you as you take baby steps in overcoming that fear and that anxiety. This is who we are. New, new people, old, new people. This is who we are. We're a community shaped by the gospel. But let me tell you a bit about what we do. Look at verses 3 to 8 with me, with your Bibles open. Let's read that. Paul writes there, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Notice that. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he lists a bunch of, bunches of, of, of things. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, 
If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If my description of the church thus far has sounded a bit idealistic or a bit naive, you're not wrong to think that. You're, you're not wrong. You wouldn't be alone, certainly. If you've been a part of a church before, you know that the church is full of saints who are simultaneously sinners. We're new creations in Christ. We read this in our Bibles, and yet we're sinners. People working this out far from being perfect. This has always, however, been the case. See, these Roman Christians to whom Paul was writing are not unlike you and me. They're similar. From first century Rome to 21st century Vancouver, the impulse has endured in the human spirit to establish ourselves in our communities as wise and spiritual and mature and above and better than other people. And being a Christian or a member of a church doesn't make this proud impulse go away. It doesn't. It doesn't. I remember I wasn't a Christian for most of my life, actually, and being in church occasionally and think, oh, these people are stupid. They need this emotional, spiritual crutch to lean on because they're not strong enough. These people are stupid. After I became a Christian, you probably know this about me if you know me at all, my pride didn't go away. It persisted, except I baptized my pride and my arrogance in Christian language. I said things like this, how come these people aren't committed as me? How come these people don't actually know their Bible like I know my Bible? I bet these people have never even been on a short-term mission trip. I'm a big deal. Look at me. We do this all the time in the church. We baptize our pride and our arrogance in Christian language. And we put it under the banner of discipleship or maturity or a hard word. But really it's pride and it's arrogance. And it's not to be that way amongst us. See, the problem with bringing in this kind of thinking into the church is that it is entirely antithetical to the gospel. If we think this way, we do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has said, for by the grace given to me, again in verse 6, the grace given to me. Paul, we, have not only been brought into the church on the basis of gifting or skill, but by grace. So we're brought into the church by grace. And it's that same grace that has brought us into the church that now equips us to mutually serve one another as the church. So by grace, you're brought into the church. And by grace, you serve one another as the church. And here's what this means for us. As bluntly as I can put this, you've heard me say this before, especially if you've been around for the two years we've been in existence. The church is not a store where you can buy religious goods and services. It's not where you give your money in exchange for a prayer from a pastor or good music on Sunday morning or childcare for an hour and a bit for your kids. It's not a store where you buy religious goods or services. The church neither is a community center where you show up awkwardly, don't make eye contact with the other parents, just wait for that program to be over and then leave having gotten what you came to get. The church is not a community center. 
Neither is a church a country club where you come and relax, share opinions, maybe sip brandy with other like-minded individuals and just come in from that dangerous, big, bad world. The church is not a country club. The church is none of these things because the church is not fundamentally a place, but a people. A people who are no longer navel-gazing consumers, but people who no longer think of themselves more highly than they ought. Because how could they? While we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were terrible, if I can translate Christ died for us. We were welcomed into the church. See, the church, and this will come up on the screen behind me, is fundamentally a body joined together by grace in or to Christ. The church is fundamentally this body joined together by grace in Christ. And as a body, I'm looking at you now, we each have roles to play. I want to ask you this morning, what gift, no one else, just you, what gift has the Lord given you to serve his body with? Paul lists a few in our text, prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, generosity, leading, acts of mercy. This list isn't exhaustive, and if we were to go elsewhere in Scripture, we'd find gifts like wisdom, and healing, and working of miracles, the ability to distinguish between spirits, even administration makes the list. What gift is the Lord calling you to use to serve his body? And if you're looking at me right now and you have no idea what your gift is, the answer is not to remain a passive consumer until you get a vision from the Lord about what your gift is, or like get zapped with, oh, that's my gift. No, the answer is to start trying and failing. Start serving in areas and realize, I should not do that. Go downstairs and teach kids ministry for a gathering and be like, I, I should not do this, right? Or you should do it. And maybe it's just hard. It's to try and, and to fail. And if I can be even more practical, let me spell this out for us. If you need more direction, there are a number of opportunities for you to serve in our church on Sunday morning. If you've got any sort of discipleship or teaching gift, you know, before I was a lead pastor of a church, I was for three years, much to my chagrin and pain and sanctification, a children's pastor. And some of you are like, no way. I can't see that at all. Neither could I. And Daniel's laughing because it's a crazy thought. And yet, where do you want to hone those discipleship and teaching gifts? There's no better place than kids' ministry. I'm telling you right now, there's no better place in kids' ministry. Kids will not lie to you. They will tell you if you're terrible. And quite frankly, if you're just starting to teach, you're probably terrible. And you need to hear that. But there's an opportunity for you on Sunday morning. If you have any sort of hospitality or administration giftings, we have a connect and a give team at the back that needs four more people. If you've got a prophecy a discerning of spirits gift, a healing gift, a working of miracles gift. I don't know what team those fit on. I don't. I frankly don't. And I'm a bit uncomfortable with them. But honestly, we'll make a team for you. Because we each have to be playing our role as the body. See, these gifts are meant to be used, yes, on Sunday mornings, but really throughout the week. 
not just on Sunday mornings. And if you came in this morning, you got a card that said on it, community groups. One other place we exercise our spiritual gifts in the service of one another are community groups. Around this room right now, maybe behind you or in front of you, there are people wearing lanyards that say, hi, I'm a community group leader. If you are not part of a community group, today is the day you become a part of one. You talk to somebody with that lanyard on and you join a group. We gather midweek for a Bible reading and prayer and food and the giving of gifts to one another. Finally, in this second point, if I can put an even finer point on it, and I hope you receive this in the spirit in which I intend it, nothing kills a body faster, nothing kills a body faster than members that do not understand their role. Do not understand that they, contrary to our Western consumerist mindset, have a vital role to play, a vital job to do. Rodney Stark is a a sociologist operating primarily in the field of religion, and he talks about this thing called the free rider problem. And he says, nothing kills collective activities. And he's a sociologist who's just observing the data. He says, nothing kills collective activities. And the church is a collective activity, like the free rider problem. And he explains it in his book like this. Listen to the example he gives. One need not look far to find examples of anemic congregations plagued by free rider problems. A visit to the nearest liberal Protestant church will suffice to discover members, in quotation marks, who draw upon the group for weddings, funerals, and perhaps holiday celebrations, but who provide little or nothing in return. Now hear me so clearly. If you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're new to the faith, I'm not asking you to start serving as a member of a body that you're not yet a part of. If you're new, Welcome. We're glad you're here. Figure out Jesus first and then figure out serving. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if this church is your home and you have no plans on being the hand or the foot or the arm that the Lord has called you to be, then very clearly, we need your seat next week. We need it. We need it for the person who's never heard the gospel, for them to come in and feel welcomed to hear the gospel for the first time. We need it for someone who is using their gifts according to the grace given to them. This is what we do. There is no church in the history of the church, true church, that does not do this. We are a community shaped by the gospel. And through that grace, we use that grace to serve one another to edify each other, both inside the church and outside the church. Last introductory question, why do we do it? Why do we do all of this? Why do we set up on Sunday morning? Why do we meet in community groups? Why am I preaching right now? Why do we do all of this? Paul continues to say in verses 9 to 21, a number of things that would be, each one of them, radical for us to truly grasp as a church. Things that would change us in tremendous ways as a community if we truly understood them. But I want to end by looking at how Paul ends this morning. And Paul ends our section in verse 12 by saying these words in verse 21. Read them with me. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's why we do what we do. 
We are a gospel-shaped community using our gifts to serve the other, to serve the stranger for the purpose so that the watching, skeptical, fearful, cynical world in which we live would see our transformation, would hear our message, and in turn, see and hear the gospel. See Jesus. One pastor put it really simply, the church is the gospel made visible. The church is the gospel made visible. How has God and how does God plan to get his good news message out, his gospel out? Well, I'll tell you, he did not write it in the clouds. I did not wake up this morning and see a plane go by with the gospel or an angelic finger painted in the clouds. I didn't see that. Did you? He did not send angelic messengers to confront world leaders at NATO summits. He does not use inception and simply plant the truth in our minds. No, God's mission to see all things reconciled to Christ, who is the head of the body, is his church. His church. And so it has been rightly said, a church does not have a mission. God's mission has a church. A church does not have a mission. God's mission has a church. And we're it. And I want to say this as nicely as I can. The hope for East Vancouver does not depend on what happens on Monday, September 20th. And frankly, judging by our social media feed and what we're excited about to talk about, it seems as if it does for many of us. That the future rests and lies in what happens on September 20th with the election. No. The hope for East Vancouver are not politicians, and we know that by now. It's not even secular activism. It's not even just doing good deeds. It's the church of Jesus Christ bearing witness in word and in deed to the gospel of Jesus. That is the hope for our neighborhood. That is the hope for the people who live right there. And right there, it's the church. It's not. That on October 24th, restrictions will get lifted again and things will be fine and back to normal. That's not our hope. The hope for East Vancouver and for South Vancouver and for Kitsilano and for UBC and even for Yaletown is the church of Jesus Christ. It is the people of God who refuse to persecute back those who persecute them, who choose instead to bless It's the people of God who contribute generously to the needs of the community, both in and outside the church, whose door is open to all people, who demonstrate radical, ordinary hospitality. It's the people of God who are people of peace on their block, not of strife or division or contention or arguments. It's the people of God who entrust the injustices of our city to the Lord who says, vengeance is mine, I, not you, not you will repay. So this is our introduction. If you were to come up to me or another one of our leaders on a Sunday morning and ask who we are, what we do, and what we're all about, why we do it, this is what we would say. Who are we? We're a community shaped by the gospel. What do we do? 
We radically serve one another and our city using the gifts given to us in grace. Not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought because we're sinners saved by grace while we were still weak. And why do we do it? Because the church is the gospel made visible. The church is the hope for East Vancouver. And I really believe that. Would you join me in praying? So Father, we thank you this morning that you have called the weak and the stumbling and the imperfect and the broken things of this world to yourself, made us whole in Christ that we might shame those things which are strong. We thank you that when you use weak things, weak people like us, you get the most glory. You look the best. And that's what we want to do. We want to give you all the glory in this corner of the city. We want you to be famous. We want you to be known as we go out in obedience. Fill us with your spirit. We desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand as the band makes their way up. Each Sunday, we respond in four ways. We sing. We get to sing some more, and it's awesome. We give. If Christ City is your home, these are your people, this is your church, you can give generously and joyously at the back following the gathering. If you need help with that, there'll be someone back there to help you with that. So we sing. We give in response. If Christ City is your home, if you're new or visiting, don't worry about that. Uh, we take the Lord's Supper together. In just a second, I'll read us into a responsive prayer for that. I want to say this. If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, don't come forward. This is for those of us, sorry, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're so confused. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't come forward. This is for those of us who call Christ our Lord, our Savior. If you're new, this is not meant to ostracize you or to make you feel left out. This is something that we do as we identify with Christ as our Lord. If you want to talk about it, I'll be back during this time. I'd love to pray with you, explain to you the communion elements uh, even further, and I would love to pray with you. I would love to see you come to know Christ for the first time. So followers of Jesus, we're going to come and receive the elements this morning. Down the aisle, someone with a mask on will be here to serve you at these single-serve cups. We ask you to go back to your seat around the sides and to partake at your seats doing that. Finally, I want to read this responsive prayer. The first part is for me. The second part is for all of us, and I'll cue us at the right time. So Christ City, hear the words of our Savior. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come then, for all is ready, and say with me, we come not because we ought, but because we may. Not because we are righteous, but because we are penitent. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we are whole, but because we are broken.